Hi everybody and welcome to InBeta. Over the past few weeks we've mentioned our disinformation tracker on this podcast and we wanted to highlight it a bit more in this conversation. I'm delighted to be welcoming one of our partner organisations on the project, the Centre for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to have um, Shengue, Tomiwa and Maristella from the Centre of Human Rights um, with us today. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. Super. Well, for our guests, um, it'd be great to get um, a bit of an introduction to the uh, Centre of Human Rights. Uh, Shengwei, why don't you talk us through the centre and how it's linked with the University of Pretoria? Um, thank you very much, Charles. So the Centre for Human Rights um, is based in South Africa at the University of Pretoria. It is uh, placed within the Faculty of Law as one of the departments. So the Center for Human Rights has um, a dual existence in that um, it's, it's both an academic institution that offers academic programs on human rights, and it, uh, at the same time it is an NGO that works on um, uh, different thematic um, areas of, of human rights. So um, we advocate for the rights of children, the rights of women, uh, business and human rights. And as here, the people that you are talking to, uh, people that are in the um, expression, um, uh, expression, information and digital rights unit. So this is one of uh, the components that make up the Center for Human Rights. And we work on those issues of um, um, Expression, freedom of expression, access to information and digital rights. And um, my name is Sengiwe. I am responsible for managing this particular unit um, that I've just made reference to. Amazing. Yeah, and we've been delighted to be able to work with you and, and your colleagues uh, on, on uh, this tracker as well as other projects in the past. Thanks so much. Um, Maristella, um, why don't you introduce yourself as well for our listeners? Uh, thank you, Charles. Uh, my name is Mary Stella Aumasimiu. I'm a Kenyan, and as Lengue said, I work with the uh, uh, Expression, Information, and Access to Information Unit. I am a researcher and a programs officer with the unit, and I'm also doing my PhD at the Center for Human Rights, University of Pretoria. I focused on the role of media in the digital age and its impact on elections with a focus on Kenya. Thank you. Amazing. And uh, Tomiwa. Um, thank you so much, uh, Charles. My name is Tomiwa Ilori, and I work with the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria as a researcher. And um, I work also at the unit, uh, Expression, Information and Digital Rights Unit. And um, basically, my I'm also a doctoral student at the, at the center. So my research focuses um, on protection of free speech and platform governance. And um, yeah, I'm looking at um, Nigeria and South Africa specifically, but also uh, the lo uh, global landscape on platform governance conversations. And so that's it about me. Amazing. Well, we're so delighted to have all three of you uh, on the on the show this week. And... 
particularly showing me up with all of your academic um, uh, backgrounds and interests. So uh, uh, thanks so much for that. There's no there's no doctoral uh, process going on for me at the moment. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Um, the sense has been a, an amazing and key player in the development of of the tracker, which we um, launched last week. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about your experience in um, working on it and and the, and the research process. Um, I wonder if anyone had any thoughts on like maybe some of the trends that you've observed in how governments in the region are are responding uh, to disinformation. From what I've seen so far, especially thanks to the tracker and some other uh, research, is that. Um, you discover that the free speech culture, especially the free speech legal culture in most African countries, are deeply rooted in um, colonial laws. So, for example, um, most um, countries within within the region are still very much they're still using the, um, um, the penal code, the criminal code uh, uh, system that has been established. Some even have as for example, in Zambia, Zambia currently has um, criminal for uh, as far back as 1940. So, and these uh, these laws do have provisions on false information, uh, and um, even when you look at some of the fines, you discover that the some some of the fines date back as far back as um, two currencies or a currency back uh, in what the, uh, the the state in question currently uses. So uh, not only are these laws archaic, they are also no longer fit for purpose. And you find out that these are the laws from which current cybercrime laws also in one way or the other borrow from. So um, uh, that has been the pattern, and um, that has been one of the major patterns, actually. Uh, in, in the region, uh, the use of uh, old laws that feed into uh, new laws, and as a result, are uh, being used to um, violate the right to freedom of expression. Um, as... Yeah. Maybe if I could even just add to what Tomiwa has said, we can increasingly see that there is this heavy handed approach to legislation of disinformation in the African continent. And often we see, like, when politicians come out and we have leaders who come out, they often have this attitude as if we are trying to rein in fake news, we're trying to ensure that the information out there is, is credible and accurate. But in if you look at it closely, like the reported basis, it's often issues where the public has come out or or a journalist has come out to criticize something that the government has done. And so they are using this existing, we have the penal code we have seen, and also increasingly we are seeing cybersecurity laws coming up, which do now have the aspect of disinformation. And we're increasingly seeing politicians and authoritarian leaders in Africa using these laws to curtail media freedom. And it's unfortunate because when they use it, when it's against them, we say as politicians, you need to have a thicker skin because you're in the public office. But they're using these laws to scare people so, such that when you see they are attached with, you know, heavy sanctions, imprisonment and heavy fights, which of course are, you know, it's it's harsh for journalists and just ordinary citizens to meet these, to meet these sanctions, you end up seeing increased self-censorship and that's the fear that we have in this space that there'll be increased self-censorship because of the sanctions attached to these laws and with 
COVID spreading and we're even seeing new regulations when it comes to disinformation and COVID, we see these new laws coming and we understand that there's a public health crisis that we are facing currently and this need to regulate the infodemic as the World Health Organization has called it. But now there's that worry of what happens after the pandemic because some of these laws are questionable. We already have questionable cybersecurity laws and we now have questionable laws coming up in this COVID-19 context. So what happens afterwards? So we have all these trends that are coming up in Africa to disinformation and it's worrying what is the future of free speech in Africa. Um, thank you, Miristella and Tomiwa. Just to add, I think you have raised uh, most of the, the trends that we noticed. I think one of the things that, uh, that we noticed when, when we were doing this research is that these laws, when you look at the, the wording of the laws, most of them, the laws are vague, um, which, um, which makes it very um, difficult to know what, um, what exactly is being uh, prohibited and what is, what is warranted. And uh, when you have such broad provisions, I'll just give an example of um, the Zimbabwean law um, in terms of its section uh, 31 of the criminal code. Um, it will criminalize the publication of communications or false statements. One of the areas there that you have is it's, it's something to do with common, with economic interests. And that is very broad and that is very vague and it's difficult for one to determine what exactly that means. And um, also, um, so in, in, in that area, it, it's, it's, very, it's very important to have clarity on what exactly um, is being required so that at least people know what, uh, what to do and what not to do. So we have such, uh, that is one of the problems. And then we have some of these provisions that are also very um, difficult to also imagine how they are going to be implemented. For example, um, in Eswatini, in the um, uh, COVID-19 regulations, um, there is a requirement to obtain permission of the Minister of Health before using print or electronic media for information on COVID-19. And um, I was saying it's very difficult to imagine the enforceability of such um, a provision and um, how what it mean, what does it mean? Does it mean that if, for example, a media house wants to publish a story on COVID-19, they have to seek the permission, how is that applicable? And what also, what does it mean in terms of, um, in terms of what is true and what is false? So I was saying that if you have such a provision, it gives unfettered discretion on the minister to decide what the standard of truth is. And that can be subjective, and that is also susceptible to being abused. And it also, um, um, uh, in a way, stifles public debate and public discussions um, around this particular issue of, of COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the the interesting thing there, well, many interesting things. I think one, obviously, the the sort of the power shift from sort of the legislature and the sort of the letter of the law, and then allowing um, sort of parts of the e executive to be able to determine um, uh, certain definitions or or clarity around uh, certain laws. Um, but one thing that you you we've just touched on is that there 
there's been such a variety of laws um, that that that, um, that actually sort of uh, touch on disinformation and have an impact on sort of free expression and human rights more broadly. Is to me what I was saying around sort of back to some of the the earlier colonial wars and and, and penal code, um, through to you know regulations that's been that have been written this year with with COVID nineteen. Um, I wonder whether you had any reflections of like how does this work from a from an individual's perspective like if if we have lots of laws that are old and well understood or have sort of um jurisprudence around them and then these these new these new laws that are either in tension with or um sort of incompatible with some of these laws um what does that mean from an from an individual who's trying to you know determine what is and what isn't permissible to 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 say so, my, in my view, personally, uh, it, it is a little bit difficult. Why? Because, uh, as my colleagues earlier have explained, the conversation now has become what the um, government or state authorities or agencies would rather regard as true uh, state of events or false information. So, ideally... And uh, I would also like to speak on, from imagined um, um, perspectives. So, for example, as, as a researcher, uh, I might not be at the risk of, um, uh, at so much risk compared to someone who is like a journalist or a media practitioner who, um, for example, now would have to think twice uh, as to what they have to share and not necessarily whether it is true or not, uh, but rather uh, as a result of the fear uh, that, must, that must have been imposed as a result of those laws and the practices um, uh, uh, on, on them and on their work. So ideally, it, it portends danger. It portends, it kills, ideally it stifles expression in its unbridled form. And I, and I don't expect, uh, I don't think that is the original idea of how to design modern societies. Everyone to a fair extent have the right to be able to freely express themselves, whether as a journalist or as a private citizen. So yes, it's it's problematic, it's it's dangerous, and it uh, it, it it offers a sense of 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 danger of uh, uh, of uh, it offers a precarious situation where you don't know whether you'll be picked up on what you said uh, uh, or not. So that would be um, my own um, perspective. Mm. I do agree with me on that. And I think for individuals, true, it will be difficult, but I guess how people are engaging with this comes from news reports. For example, um, let's say there was a case in Malawi where uh, a, a gentleman was arrested because he made a cartoon of the first lady, and it was thought to be insulting the decency of a woman as well as he was charged also under the Cyber Security Act. And so sometimes you will see these incidents. I believe individuals will see these incidents online and think, oh, so when journalists now analyze these laws is when they realize, oh, there's this law. And if I do this, this is what will impact on me. But some of them are really stretching it when it comes to exercise of free speech and how to regulate disinformation in these spaces. And when such incidences are used to penalize people, it becomes quite shocking for the public because you start questioning yourself just because I'm doing this, which is something, it's satire. How is this satire supposed to be something that comes back to bite me? And so we have this, as Tomiwa say, chilling incidents. And well, for the public, I guess they will learn it from 
incidences that are reported in the media. Researchers as ourselves as well as students who research on this, they might be well aware of the theory of it, the laws that are there, but in practice are from these incidences that we see out there. And it's, I think, up to all stakeholders, especially us in the research field, to be able to shine a spotlight on, on these incidences and just critically analyze how these incidences reflect the best practice when it comes to implementation of laws on disinformation and how we can actually rein in this information to ensure that public debate is actually accurate and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, um, from my side, I can say that um, such such provisions, such such laws that we are looking at today, they do really send a chilling effect, um, whether it's, it's, it's individuals or um, it's, um, it's um, those in the media fraternity or uh, those of us in, in academia. It, it kind of becomes, especially when I'm going back to the point that I mentioned about the laws being vague, the laws being um, overly broad and uh, the over-criminalization that we are seeing, like for example in Zimbabwe, it's like it's um, the in terms of the criminal code, it's 20 years imprisonment, and um, that does really have a, a chilling effect. Um, I wanted just like we've done all this, you've done all this amazing work, you've researched all this stuff, we've pulled it all together, put it up on a on a, on a you know online tool, like. Who do you think this tool would be, you know, useful for? Like, how might they make any use of it at all? In my view, um, in my view, I think ideally it would most be useful for, uh, for example, researchers and civil society organizations. And there's a reason why I put that way before governments and state actors. The reason is because, um, I mean, in my view, I think... Uh, the governments always get the memo. They know the impact mm. of this. And there's a reason, there's a design, there's a motive behind them in the first place. So um, whether this tracker is there or not, um, it's still, in a very, to a very large extent, does not determine um, whether the states would have. So the reason why I decided to choose um, researchers and civil society organizations first is because to me those are the stakeholders which uh, who are in a better position to maximize the potentials of the tracker and what do I mean by maximize maximize in the sense that um, these uh, the laws are there the impact of the laws are there and the threats the post to freedom of expression are also there so putting all of this information together and using them as a more um, proactive and active uh, advocacy tools um, against uh, government repression and in some instances where it's possible in order to be able to work with government is very key. It will be really beneficial if just ordinary citizens have a use for this tracker, like individuals have a buy-in in this tracker that we have. But I guess that will be largely based on how well we publicize this tracker mm -hmm. and make it actually relevant to the ordinary citizens. And while I guess with laws, it might become a bit cumbersome when it comes to reading laws, even if they have been... Well, it helps that the tracker is, does not give the laws like verbatim, but it at least provides a summary of what the law provides and how it can bring about sanctions. So that can help an ordinary citizen because it's not filled with legalese. It's easy to understand. So you can easily follow and see how this law impacts me and which section of the law impacts me. And... 
ideally also the incidences or real life incidences where the law has impacted an ordinary citizen and not only a journalist can help citizens see how how these laws have been implemented in their in their day-to-day life in their different jurisdictions and so it's up to us, I believe, because we come from different countries in Africa and we're spread out and we have you as our partners. If we publicize this tool very well, we'll be able to have individuals, ordinary citizens, able to make reference to this, understand the implications of the laws in their countries and where they feel the laws do not meet the ideals of the democracy that they are pushing for, to be able to actually push, for example, for repeals or amendments of these laws. That will be at least something worthwhile that can come from this track, I believe. Thanks, Maristella. Super interesting and a lot to think about. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Shengwei, Tomiwar and Maristella for coming on and sharing their insight. You can find the tracker at www.disinformationtracker.org. Have a look and let us know if you have any feedback. We'll also be running a remote launch event for the tracker on the 21st of July, which is open to everyone to join. Stay posted for details on that soon. Until next time, goodbye.